This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back. This is the Uptime Podcast. On today's episode, we are going to chat in our first segment about news. We're going to talk about Vestas blades that are still having problems. It sounds like at this point, they're going to shut down Uh, a bunch of turbines in a large wind farm. And so Iowa is kind of like the hotbed for investigatory um, analysis here. So we're going to chat about that a little bit. In our engineering segment today, we're going to talk about high humidity and some of the issues that can cause, especially in offshore wind. Uh, LIDAR, this is a not new technology, obviously, but the application here uh, on measuring wind turbine speed, especially in remote locations, is really interesting. And lastly, we're going to chat a little bit more about fires and some of the reporting it and some of the uh, implications for people's emotions getting in the way and not wanting their reputations perhaps to be damaged by saying, hey, we have had a fire here and, you know, we need to return that that data to the uh, the rest of the world. So, Alan, mm-hmm. let's jump into Iowa and Vestas. So V110, two megawatt wind turbines seem to be having some problems they are and it, it's su- surprising because it's it seems like it's relatable to that particular turbine or lightning and the lightning protection system from news reports local news reports in iowa they seem to be focusing on the lightning protection system and in fact they've shut down about 45 or 46 turbines in which have indications of lightning strikes near them or to them because they're concerned about the subsequent structural damage, internal damage to these blades and whether it's causing some other catastrophic effect because blades breaking off is is really catastrophic from the structural standpoint. I, I don't know, the, the question really right now is what is the possible failure mode? Is it really lightning or is it high winds? Because with lightning strike tends to come high winds, thunderstorms, bring high mm-hmm. winds and we can sometimes confuse that we've had a recent lightning strike with also having a recent storm pass through and we, we've overloaded the the blade structure and then didn't notice the internal damage that was caused the blade don't you think that some of this may be just straight high 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 winds at this point dan it just seems like this is too too many of these issues yeah i'd be really curious to see what happens in the root cause analysis when they come back with you know a you know a, a reason that this is all happening but yeah it seems i don't know kind of implausible that lightning is destroying so many of these right i mean they've had a couple right. and now they're just really nervous that there's some underlying defects so they want to check them all but right. yeah there's too many turbines around where if lightning was causing this many to fail it'd be more of a problem somewhere else so it seems more just like a either a manufacturing defect which they probably realize that that's a piece of it at this point or mm. you know yeah it just doesn't seem like lightning even though it obviously is an expensive problem to fix it doesn't seem like lightning's 
chopping blades in half that often, right? So there's something else right. at play. <laughs> well, I think yeah. these blades are too short to have carbon fiber, and carbon fiber is always the seen as the weak link because it is conductive enough to carry lightning energy. And if you have a down conductor system, which almost all blades have, that if you have a down conductor system and carbon fiber, that there can be some bad sparking between the two, which can damage mm -hmm. a carbon fiber. Or you can over overheat the carbon fiber and cause later damage to appear just because of the f fatigue on the blades. But on these shorter blades, and I, I know a V110 is not a small blade, but it, in relatively speaking, it, it should just be an all fiberglass blade with a, a copper down conductor in the middle of the blade. And there's really nothing structurally that should happen there unless the copper, and then the copper is exploding. There's, there's only a very limited subset of things that can happen inside that blade that would cause that kind of structural damage, which, which leads me to believe that it's not necessarily a lightning issue as it is a a high speed high wind, high wind situation which will break blades we know that'll break blades and 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 also i kind of wonder if this is everybody's just being super cautious because they know vestas has been dealing with a lot of uh lightning repair they had that 175 million dollar uh, repair mm -hmm. bill to to fix a number of wind turbine blades so your your first thought goes to it's some sort of lightning issue May maybe may not be, uh, but with this wind turbine company in Iowa essentially shutting down forty six wind turbines, and they're going to go inspect all those, which is going to take a while. Maybe they can see internal damage to these blades and try correlate it to what the real driver is. And I just have a hard time believing it's lightning. It's, it's it seems seems like it's more it's wind speed or or manufacturing defect. I mean, it could be a manufacturing defect. Yeah. Absolutely. Can you speak so a little more to the carbon fiber thing? I think that sounds counterintuitive where you're saying that this is surprising that, you know, because these are, are fiberglass, they should be more durable than carbon mm -hmm. fiber. That seems counterintuitive because obviously everyone knows that carbon fibers is incredibly strong and yet lightweight material. So can you speak to why you're, you know, if this was made of carbon fiber, you'd be more likely to accept that it was lightning damage? Well, carbon fiber is lightweight and it is extremely strong, but it is slightly conductive. It's not as conductive as a piece of copper would be, but it is conductive. And we, we make all kinds of structures out of carbon fiber that handle lightning energy. Aircraft are designed with carbon fiber all the time and handle lightning energy. What the issue is with carbon fiber uh, and, the, and the resin systems that they're encapsulated in. So it's not just the carbon fiber, but it's, it's the epoxy system or whatever resin system they're using for the blade. Because carbon fiber can carry some light energy, and carbon fiber doesn't really care. I mean, carbon fiber is essentially burnt material, but the resin system doesn't like getting hot. And carbon fiber is very pretty is kind of resistive so if you as you shove lightning energy down carbon fiber it gets hot and the resin system gets over temped uh, so it may vaporize the the resin system locally because the temperatures get so hot and once you do that you degrade the structural integrity of the blade so having carbon fiber there provides a pathway to to degrade the resin system, i.e. the structure of the blade. Fiberglass won't do that. Fiberglass is non-conductive. So either you're gonna punch a hole through it from lightning and cause some sort of explosive effect or or, or nothing's gonna happen uh, mm -hmm. because it can't conduct the lightning energy. So in a way, fiberglass is a lot more uh, conducive to controlling lightning than the carbon fiber blades are. It's all about the design. 
the issue in this particular case where you have a what should be a, a completely fiberglass blade design when you have blades get severed somewhere down near the root or the hub those structures down there are massive massive uh, yeah. fiberglass structures i mean it, it makes other things seem tiny they're just they're just so thick and there and there's no way that lightning energy can travel through them unless it punctures through them and at that point it's so thick it probably doesn't do that uh, so to have them break down near that hub base area indicates that there's something else going on probably not lightning and i know we have been involved in a couple of other projects where there have been some questions about lightning strikes causing uh, blade tip separations and some other things and it turned out just looking at the, the raw data when you start looking at all the data you realize that the, the wind speeds were really high relative to having a thunderstorm pass through uh, so lightning didn't correlate to damage wind speeds started to correlate to damage and this is a thing that uh, Alex Byrne brought up from DNVGL the other day when we had her on the, pod had her on the podcast was we don't have really good measurements for wind speed on the turbines so if you do have a high speed wind event and it, you say it's localized or say especially in iowa and the midwest of the united states where you can have tornadoes or cyclical wind activity that's local very very local uh there's really no way to detect that you wouldn't detect it except that you would have structural damage to your blades but you wouldn't have any data to go back and look at necessarily and that's the trouble uh and that's what Alex was pointing out is that a lot of times we assume a certain kind of failure mode, but because of the lack of data, we really are, are not sure. And one of the key pieces to determining if we have too high wind loads is have something to measure wind speeds. Yeah, which yeah. we'll cover a little bit later too with the yeah. LIDAR stuff. So that's an interesting development there, but it is. Yeah, you're right. I guess the worst scenario is that this comes back inconclusive where yes you know it could be any of three possible scenarios or a confluence of factors and that's probably the worst i'm sure at this well, point they'd yeah. like to just identify that it was it was this like so let's just move past it but let me yeah. be devil's advocate here for you dan there are 46 wind turbines that have either taken a lightning strike or near lightning strike so they're on your list of watch you're going to send a crew out or multiple crews out to go look inside each one of those blades to see, or on the outside of the blade and the inside of the blade, probably, to go see if there's some sort of structural defect. You're going to do that once, right? So there's 46 blades one time. Say you come back and you say, you know, I don't really see anything. What, is that the last time you look at them? Probably not. You're probably going to be back there every two weeks, every month, because local government officials are going to ask you to keep checking those blades to see if mm -hmm. it's a fatigue problem, right? So your best case situation is you identify relatively quickly what this issue is. Otherwise, you're going to be inspecting 46 times three blades for the foreseeable future, which if you're the poor technician that has to do that, that's not an enviable job. No way. Yeah. So obviously, this is not a huge sample size. Like Vestas had a, a V150 blade break off an Ohio site recently. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about that. You know, I feel like in today, you know, this is just like you compare celebrities today to celebrities back in the past. Like, it's not like celebrities <laughs> were getting in less trouble personally, you know, like getting caught doing <laughs> weird things in their personal life. They just there's just Twitter ever. There's, a, there's a, a phone on everyone right now. So you can't do anything as a celebrity <laughs> and not have someone film you doing it. Right. Right. And today, you know, like it's not clear how big of a sample size this is because every blade 
failure is going to get reported on. Like, it's a big deal. It's a cool photo. Mm-hmm. It's very ooh and ah, right? So, yeah, I mean, there's there's been a couple recently, but as we all know, with just like random chance and variance, if you have 10,000 blades and you know, like, say 10, you know, 1%, is that 1%? No, it's uh, 0.1% uh, are going to fail, then you could have 10 fail all in the one month period and then none for the next nine years or you could have them all evenly spaced out one per year over 10 years right, right? you just don't know yeah. you could just run yeah. bad just like playing poker or anything else Variables. so it's 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 still a small sample size and it's hopefully not a, a big deal and they're like yeah maybe we just had a weird isolated incident where we just had a bad string of you know in the news and a couple broke all at once but we should be fine you just, yeah. you just won't, really, won't really know until they finish that root cause analysis yeah, and there's roughly, just to get your head around it, there's about 60,000 wind turbines in the United States, which means 60 times 3 is 180,000 blades. So having a blade or two break is really, really down on the noise in terms of of uh, percentage-wise, and it, it starts to get to that variability. Is it just random breakage? Not that that's good, but is it just random and it like, just cluster together because we have some high wind speeds and, and localized areas that are causing this quote unquote cluster to appear, but it's not real. It's it's not a structural issue as, as much as uh, we're not able to really monitor the winds as much as we can. And yeah, and, and then we have this something that seems much more severe than it really is. All right, so moving on to our engineering segment here. Alan, let's talk about humidity. So this is an interesting article posted on LinkedIn uh, by Michael Holm. He's the chief commercial officer from Coates. They're a company that makes humidifiers. Uh, So he's just talking about some of the things his company does and how much of a problem humidity is inside wind turbines, especially out at sea, which this is a really interesting um, thing to think about because I think he's absolutely right that condensation you've i mean he said they're they're removing sometimes seven liters of water per 24-hour period from the air inside of a turbine which is crazy to think about that's a lot of that's (laughs) some wet air yeah Uh, but when obviously when that condenses on all the metallic you know surfaces within it that can cause shorts and all sorts of electrical problems (laughs) not not even including corrosion and all that stuff so obviously you're an electrical engineer how big is this and how big is this problem of humidity and is it often talked about it is in the electrical world because condensation particularly salty condensation or conductive which is what it is conductive condensation is bad for electrical circuitry and in a lot of instances if you open up control cabinets what you'll see electrical control cabinets is you'll see plastic covers and uh, protection means to, to prevent drips from falling in bad spots. Uh, so it's one thing if you're having condensation on the tower, inside the tower, and it's running down the sides of the tower. It's another thing if you have condensation in a control cabinet and you have exposed electrical wiring or exposed electrical components mm-hmm. where it can affect the performance of the circuitry. That's a big, big, big problem. And uh the condensation because it's obviously going to depend on what part of the world you're in and what the temperatures are and what the relative humidity is and as we get to colder climates especially with salty air and you're getting these 
uh, warm day, cool nights kind of things sort of happening, you can get a lot of condensation inside of wind turbines. We see a very similar thing in aircraft, and I know it's hard to think about an aircraft, but you know, aircraft flies at 30, 40,000 feet, gets really cold soaked, and then we're all going to Disney World, we're flying through, you know, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando areas, and that cold soaked airplanes all the water starts to condensate inside of it. And if you're in the right part of the airplane, the back part of the airplane, it's like it's raining in there. There's that much condensation pouring down. Wow, that's so weird. Airplanes. Yeah, it's really serious. And, and if you look at a lot of the, if there's electrical power circuitry and things like that in those uncontrolled atmospheric areas, there are covers and protectors to prevent the water to go into bad places and to, to drain it out. And there's all kinds of floor drains all over aircraft to suck the water up because there's a lot of condensation because it's it's getting cold soaked and it's flying into high humid conditions. So there's just condensation happens. You're gonna have that same sort of effect, not as severe on a wind turbine, but you know the tower wind turbine is made out of metal, so it, it's thermally conductive, very thermally conductive. So whatever the outside temperature is is pretty much what the tower temperature mm -hmm. is, and at the right combination, you're going to get condensation, and that's bad. So there's really two ways to combat it. Uh, try to uh, well, and then in this particular case, what they're doing is they're drying out the air, cleaning the air, trying to desalinate the air, and shove clean air in it. Mm -hmm. Which is probably the best solution. Another solution is just basically put a dehumidifier in there and just try to suck as much water out of the air as you possibly can. Yeah. Uh, but don't you think as, and again, I go back to our discussions with DMVGL, as, and, and the argument made about uh, all kinds of systems, that as the, the megawatts increase and the cost of the turbines increase, the relative cost of dehumidifying systems, lightning protection systems, fire suppression systems, all those other things become relatively small, not inconsequential, but smaller that yeah. it's time to put those systems in just to keep this equipment up and running longer. Because I can't yeah, imagine. Well, perfect analogy. I got runner's insurance on my laptop because I work on my computer for a living. And yeah. as you know, recently I got a new MacBook uh, Air and like seven days later left a water bottle the cap a little bit open and it filled my new laptop with water so i learned this valuable lesson that <laughs> electronics don't love water because nope. it certainly didn't turn back on after it was filled to the brim um with water and i learned that the risk of paying 40 bucks a year for laptop insurance was very worth it because now i didn't have to shell out another 1200 for a laptop so right perfect yeah. analogy it sounds like this was just meant to be to happen so we could really, you know, relate these two stories here on the podcast. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. I mean, if this is a, I have no idea what these humidifying systems cost, but, you know, if you just end up having major circuit issues and major parts breaking because of condensation and all that, then well, they're, they're just, certainly going to end up worth it. Yeah. Yeah. They're just complicated air conditioners, right? If you chill mm -hmm. the air, you're, you're creating condensation on coils, and then you're taking the water and dumping it over overboard, and then you put a filter behind it to hopefully suck out some of the dirt and the crud that wants to, to blow in. So if you're pushing in drier air, you're forcing out the more humid air all the time. Uh, it's just like the way a clean room works. You filter the air, you pressurize the room, and all the dirty air on the outside gets pushed away from the room the whole time. It's a similar sort of concept, so it can't be all that expensive to do because like I said, it's, it's fundamentally a, an air conditioner. So I think relatively speaking, it probably makes a lot of, uh, of sense long-term to put in a, in a dehumidifying system in. Interesting article out there from Coates and uh, Mr. Holm who works for the, the Coates company. So uh, moving on 
ZX LiDAR has been approved for use on Siemens Gamesa turbines. Yeah. And their website's really interesting. It says they can, the accuracy, so these, these, I'm getting ahead of myself here. The LiDAR can measure wind speed, especially in remote locations, right? And they mm-hmm. can apparently get it, get it right within plus or minus one meter per se, or 0.1 meters per second, which is very accurate. Yeah. And wind direction to plus or minus 0.5 uh, degrees. So half a degree. Wow. So Alan, how does this technology work? What are they measuring? And, and how does this whole thing tie into making wind turbines more efficient? So it, it works in a very similar way to weather radar work or any sort of radar. If you think about uh, the most simple form of radar you watch on television, they're showing the storms coming in, you can see the colors change. What in, in, the, in the weather radar situation, what they're actually doing is they're sending out a pulse of RF energy out to the sky and some portion of that gets reflected back and they measure the time delta to travel out and to travel back and the intensity of that signal on the backside to then determine how intense that storm is and how far away it is. So think of doing the same thing except with light, lasers. But instead of bouncing the energy off of water particles in a cloud, you're essentially bouncing it off the dirt and the crud that's in the air. So they're, they're, they're measuring their reflection back and the time it takes to go from A to B uh, off of dirt particles in the air to determine how fast and what direction the air is blowing. Mm-hmm. It's it really ingenious technology because it's not just measuring it in one particular spot. It can measure it in a lot of different locations simultaneously, nearly simultaneously. Uh, so it gives you a, a real good picture of what the wind looks like coming into the turbine. Now, why do we care, right? Why why are why do we even want that data? Well, one, you can verify the efficiency of the turbine. If you know exactly what the wind speed is and its direction, you can tell if you're pointed correctly into the wind, something you need to know. And then you can look at your power curves versus the wind speeds and see, are we actually generating the amount of power that we should be at this particular wind speed? Those are really important things to know if you're looking to maximize the efficiency of your wind turbine. The the other thing that it can allow you to do, and it depends on how far the LIDAR can see out in front of the turbine, is if you do have a tornado situation or hurricane, typhoon, <laughs> any, any sort of high wind, twisty wind sort of event, uh, you can give the wind turbine a little bit of a heads up on the control system side and say, hey, look, uh, a, a big wind gust is coming. Let's feather the blades so that we don't take the full blunt of the wind load on the on the blade structure and maybe do some structural damage uh, or to dampen to dampen the effect onto the, the load into the tower and all kinds of things. Uh, if you know what's coming, it's like bracing for mm-hmm. like in football, you see a lineman coming at you, you sort of brace up and get ready to take that hit. This yeah. is what the wind turbine call, would call be. your call your wind your wind turbine children and tell them you love them because they're not. <laughs> yeah. This might be this might be it for you. The farm <laughs> might be gone. Right. Well, and I think it has always been, I go back to Alex Byrne again, which she was really about, we need to have more data of what's going on on each of the wind turbine sites so we can then analyze the data properly. And with LIDAR, you're going to get a lot of data, very accurate data, 
to determine the efficiency of your worm timber system, one, but also maybe to prevent some of these structural damage events from happening, which is super important. So again, as the wind turbines get larger and become uh, more expensive to install, it starts to make sense for some of these Delta small systems safety features to be installed to protect your investment. And I think LIDAR is one of them. That's why you see Siemens Gamesa, you know, basically blessing a particular uh, version of a LIDAR system as being good for this wind turbine. And probably because it interfaces with their control systems. I'm guessing that's probably part of the deal. Is that yeah, integrated this, into the system? Yeah, and this version is the, the ZXTM. So, um, and they said, you know, it has to be agreed on, you know, by the customer, whether they can use the, you know, both parties need to say, okay, we're fine with, verifying um you know the, the the speed with lidar instead of the you know the uh, the mast and the anano yeah, anemometer so yeah which is a um, very clunky system and then that's a 1910 ish 1880 kind of wind vane on top of the barn system of detecting wind direction and wind speeds it's antiquated because it's not accurate and it's measuring it after it goes by the blades so the event has already happened when all right, to the to the load. So if you do have some sort of high wind microburst kind of event, it's already mm -hmm. too late. By the time you measure it, the wind's already by you. So you can't react to it versus a lighter, which you can see out front and then adapt, which is a huge delta in terms of increasing blade longevity and blade safety and efficiency and all kinds of other things. Uh, it just makes sense to get to a lighter solution. So our last topic for today, uh, interesting article from windpowermonthly.com, just talking uh, about underreported uh, wind turbine fires. And the headline here is fires at wind farms underreported over fears of reputational damage. So this is something I think we've talked about sort of as a recurring theme that, mm -hmm. you know, a wind turbine manufacturers are keeping all of their data close to the vests. So you don't really know who's solving what problem, how, right? They don't want right. to. And it seems like that's kind of hurting everyone's ability to grow as an industry. Like, hey, we could share a little bit of a data or a little bit of our data. Then we could solve some of these problems together and move forward. But yep. also this is just getting into human psychology a little bit where people don't really want to admit that they're having problems, right? It just goes beyond right. the data. You know, there's no like data secrecy issue there. They just don't want to admit that, yeah, maybe when energy is not as uh safe i mean it is very safe but maybe it's you it know is. this is all just data that's saying like that there are issues which there's issues with everything right how many car mm -hmm. accidents there are there every day we don't right. need to you know screw up the uh you know fudge the data on car accidents like we just we know that there's a certain amount that happen and hopefully get safer over time but there are car accidents there's there's you know plane crashes and there's mm -hmm. issues with wind turbines, including fires. So does this surprise you that maybe there's a little bit of under-reporting? Under well, I, I think there's probably under-reporting in terms of they're claiming with the insurance company. That may be part of it. Um, it's just like in an automobile accident or some sort of home accident. If the, if the damage is low, you're not going to claim it. So nobody really knows the wiser and you fix it and move on. Maybe not realizing there's more of a larger root problem to what created that fire and then i i think also in the, in the united states in particular because uh it's a pretty big country and it's very state and local 
localized and fire departments tend to be very local also and not really connected in a sense that they're providing data to the rest of the world. So I can't necessarily go online and look and say, hey, what happened in uh, this small town in West Texas in terms of fires? I don't know if that data is really accessible uh, and unless a local news station or television station reports it, you may not have any sort of record of a fire occurring if the fire department doesn't sort of broadcast it out. Mm-hmm. So it's really going to be really hard to tell how many fires there are on wind terms in the United States. And, and the same would exist in Canada and other places that you just don't really have a reporting system for it. I think the the key, though, is realizing as an industry, and this is where uh, groups like ESIG and some of the other groups that are focused on industry needs and industry data and sharing of information, those are the forums in which I think are important that even in in the automotive world, I think automotive world, they've shared data between the manufacturers about general problems, motorist driving habits and that sort of thing, that if you can share data amongst one another, you can most likely eliminate some of these problems or you can identify them ahead of time so you can address them. Because with, it, with any fire, you have to have some sort of overheat situation combined with some sort of fuel combined with oxygen when which you always have oxygen for the most part so you just need that heat and you need that fuel grease bearing heat all kinds of other issues can be a problem and you know it's just again we get back to our fire suppression systems needed well it depends on how many fires there are and what the cost of those fires are and and until we get a really good handle on what those fires are how big they are how expensive they are how many they are it's going to be really hard to justify one way or the other all right well we're going to wrap up today's episode of uptime if you're new to the show welcome if you're a regular here thank you for your continued support please subscribe to the show and leave a review on itunes spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.